It's good to be together this morning. My name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13, and we we started uh, last Sunday uh, a five-week movement through this this chapter of Mark 13. Our our kind of uh, modus operandi around here is to to plant ourselves in a book of the Bible and then just slowly preach our way through that book. And that's what we've been doing with Mark uh, for the, the, the last couple of years, actually. This is our 53rd uh, Sunday uh, in Mark. We've had various breaks between uh, uh, certain passages, but here we are, 53rd Sunday in the Gospel of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 13 which is a, uh, a somewhat of a difficult passage for us. Um, and, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, and some of that ground is fairly steep. Uh, and so we want to get into this, and just so you know, this will probably be a little bit on the longer end of the, the sermons here at Veritas. Um, so not every sermon here is, is this long, but like I said, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and some of it's pretty steep. So uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help, and uh, then let's dig in. Uh, Father, we do ask that you would anoint the reading and preaching of your word with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord, we ask. Amen. Well, I, I recently... Uh, listen to this podcast that asks the question, do people pay attention to signs? Do people pay attention to signs? And what ensued was this uh, fascinating pod app, if you will, uh, that had stories and research about the effectiveness and sometimes the lack of effectiveness of, of signs to change human thinking and behavior. Uh, several studies have been done in order to, to uh, assess the effectiveness of what they call DMS signs, dynamic messaging signs on highways and roads. Uh, dynamic messaging signs are, are those signs that can change a message on their screens. They might be uh, those uh, speed signs that tell you how fast you're going down the road. I know some of you uh, try to speed up when you see those, get a new record. Uh, it's not good. Not good to do that. Uh, there's also the um, the screens on highways that encourage you to buckle up or put your phone down or, or to tell you how many fatal accidents have been on that stretch of road in the last year. And what some of these studies have found is, is that these signs can at times have something of an effect depending on what their message is. Stretches of road uh, with signs encouraging people to, to check their speed or to put their seatbelts on or to put their phones down. They've, they've generally seen a slight decrease in accidents, which is good. Uh, Other signs, signs that tell you how many fatal accidents have been on uh, that stretch of road in the last year have actually shown to lead to an increase of accidents in some cases, and probably because people's attention spans have been drawn away from the road and attracted to the message of the sign, possibly a little too much, and so when that happens, people, their attention is not on the road as much as they're just thinking about what they just saw on that sign, which could lead to dangerous outcomes at times. However, what's been far more effective than the dynamic messaging signs is simply having a better built environment on these roads. Having roads that are, are you know, not just one long straight shot in which people are more tempted to speed and drive recklessly on, but having roads that curve around a bit to kind of slow people down. Roads that have rumble strips on the sides. Roads that have many more you know, lanes of traffic, depending on how much uh, traffic uh, goes through that area generally. Th- these kinds of changes made the biggest difference in driver safety, more so than these DMS signs. This morning, we come to a passage that deals with signs, okay, or a sign, rather. As we discussed this last week, this is a chapter whose interpretation uh, it can be highly contested in the church. Uh, not many Christians agree about the, the meaning and t- interpretation of this chapter. And one of the di- big disagreements in which people sometimes get bogged down in with arguments and vain curiosity and distraction and speculation is what this sign in today's passage is talking about. And, and, and hear me, it's not an unimportant discussion. 
right? It, this, is, this is in the Bible, and as Christians, we care about what the Bible says, and we want to understand it as best we can, so it's worth giving some attention to the discussion about what these signs mean here in our passage. But even more important than that is the kind of built environment among God's people that Jesus intended to create in his teaching here in Mark 13. Okay, the kind of built environment in our community wherein you find faith and godliness and obedience. And so, and so this morning, we're going to seek to expose and apply the message of Mark 13, 1 through 23 here in a way that honors the intention of Jesus and his transforming work in our lives. We're going to look at, the, at these signs here, and we're going to look at the kind of people Jesus is calling us to be here for the sake of his glory and grace moving forward in the earth. And so with that said, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're going to read Mark 13, 1 through 23. And as we do so, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy to the words of our God and King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as it's recorded for us here by Mark, as he wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark 13, 1 through 23. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, as we saw last week, Jesus is now leaving the temple as he had been there throughout all that Tuesday of Holy Week. Uh, and he's leaving the temple for the last time in Mark's gospel. But, but this theme of the temple that we've been seeing in Mark continues in Mark 13. As Jesus' disciples, we looked at it last week, they made a comment to him about the temple's magnificence. And in response to this comment, we saw last week Jesus foretold the temple's destruction and Jerusalem's destruction in the year 70 AD, which happened at the hands of the Roman Emperor Titus and his army. We saw this all as we looked at the first two verses of Mark 13 last Lord's Day. However, in verse 3 here, we see Jesus and his disciples 
make their way over to the Mount of Olives. And the teaching of Jesus in this chapter happens uh, on the Mount of Olives. It's, it's often, uh, people call it the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is this mountain that stands across from the temple as it stood there in that day. And this mount overlooked the temple and all of its magnificence. And it's while on this mountain that Jesus' disciples come to him with this question about what he just foretold about the temple's destruction and Jerusalem's destruction in the year 70 AD. Now, here's what they ask him. Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus privately, and they ask him in verse 4, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they're asking about the temple's destruction, right? They're asking about the temple's destruction. It's important to recognize that, because many Christians interpret this this. Uh, passage in this teaching in Mark 13, 1 through 23, as talking about the final judgment and Christ's end time return. But that's not what the disciples are asking about here, and thus it's not what Jesus goes on to teach about in the verses we're looking at this morning. Okay, when the disciples say these things, they're asking about the temple's destruction and Jerusalem's destruction. So they ask about when these things will happen And they ask for a sign that will signify that these things are about to take place. And Jesus answers their questions in verses 5 to 23. Now, those verses, 5, 23, they they mark out the beginning and end of the passage. We see there what we call an inclusio. Uh, You Bible scholars will want to remember that one. Uh, An an inclusio is this this literary device that brackets off a section of text. It, It serves as kind of bookends to a teaching which is meant to be all taken in in one serving, right? So Jesus begins our passage this morning with verses 5 and 6, telling us to be on guard because of false teachers. And then he ends our passage with an exhortation to be on guard because of false teachers in verses 21 to 23. That's the the kind of inclusio that brackets off our text. Now, within the structure of the passage itself, there's two main sections. There's the first section that deals with what we might call non-signs occurrences and events that the disciples might very well confuse as signs that the temple's destruction is drawing near, but are not actually signs. They're occurrences that are actually just part of living in a fallen world in one sense. And that section is found in verses 5 to 13. And then in verses 14 to 23, we find uh, the sign. We find, uh, I'm sorry, actually, I think I, I got that wrong there. Let's see. Not 5 to 13. Uh, No, it is 5 to 13. Sorry. 5 to 13, that's the first section there. And then verses 14 to 23, we find the sign in answer to the disciples' request for the sign. Jesus gives them the sign that the temple's destruction is drawing near, and then some instruction about what to do when it was about to happen. Now, in verses 5 to 13, we find what we could call the non-signs, right? This this might confuse some of us, because some of us have, have grown up in church traditions that teach that these non-signs are actually signs of Christ's soon return. But again, Christ is not talking about his return yet here. He's talking about the temple's destruction. And even as it pertains to the temple's destruction, he actually tells his disciples that these are not the signs they're to look for to tell them that the temple's destruction is about to take place. If you look at verse 7, he says, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet, meaning the temples and Jerusalem's destruction is not about to take place when you see these things yet. In verse 8, he says, these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Again, these occurrences don't signify that the temple's destruction is about to take place. They're more like premonitions or or harbingers of it. And as you look at these non-signs, part of what might stand out to you as they're actually just part and parcel of living in a fallen world. There are occurrences that really every Christian in every age of the church will see. And you'll see this as we look at our passage here. The the first non-sign is in verses 5 to 6, which is the appearance of false teachers. Jesus says in in verses 5 and 6, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And I won't go into too much detail here, but if if you were to read some ancient historians about the period between Christ's ascension in the 30s and the temple's destruction in the 70s, you'll find many false teachers appearing and leading many astray. Sometimes they claim to be Christ themselves. 
Sometimes they claim to teach in Christ's name, but we're actually teaching heresy. You can probably find information about uh, out there if you just do a quick Google search about Judas the Galilean or Menahem, the, the son of Judas the Galilean, or John of Giscala, and, and many others. Many false teachers appeared in Israel between 30 and 70 AD, and many followed these false teachers at that time. Even some professing Christians were drawn away by these teachers. But again, this is a non-sign. There's always false teachers. There has been throughout all of church history, and there are still today. And it may be Judas the Galilean, it may be Joel Osteen, it, it may be uh, John of Giscala or Paula White. There's always false teachers. And so Jesus exhorts his disciples to be on guard against such false teaching. The second non-sign is in verses 7 to 8. We saw the appearance of false teachers. Now we see the arrival of wars and natural disasters. Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. He says his disciples will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And it's true. If you look at the list of many conflicts uh, in, in those years between 30 and 70 AD, you'll see a lot of battles, rebellions, uprisings, wars. In the 40s, you'll find the, the Roman Bosporan Wars. In the 50s, you'll see the Roman Parthian Wars. You'll, you'll see several conflicts and uprisings in Israel, even some in Jerusalem itself. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed. These things must happen according to God's providence. But the destruction is not to take place yet. Same as with natural disasters. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. There's a great famine in Jerusalem, as we read, in the, as we read about, as we read in the, the epistles in the New Testament. But these are just harbingers of the greater disaster to come, the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And again, you can see these are non-signs. They're really just part and parcel of living in a fallen world. One, one historian says uh, of war and history that war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. And it's true to this day, right? Turn on the news, get on social media this afternoon. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear of Russia and Ukraine. You'll hear of possible nuclear Armageddon foretold by the White House. You'll hear of tensions rising between China and Taiwan. You'll hear about hurricanes in Florida, of typhoons in Alaska, flooding in Nigeria, of famines in Somalia, of wildfires the world over, and more. This is the reality of living in a post-Genesis 3 world. There will be the arrival of wars and disasters. But then the last non-sign can be found there in, in verses 9 to 13. And there we find the advancement of the church's mission and its persecution. Jesus says there in verse 10 that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, don't get that confused with the promise that the gospel will reach every nation before the final return of Christ. That, of course, is true. You read Revelation 7, you'll see that reality revealed. And thus as Christians, we're tasked today with bringing the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue throughout all the earth. And that will be achieved before Christ's final return. We'll talk about that next week. But Jesus' words here have a more limited scope. Again, he's talking about the temple's destruction in 70 AD. And with that, all nations is limited here to just the known world at that time. Sometimes the New Testament speaks of all nations as the people groups within the Roman Empire and the known world at that time. You can see this in Acts 2.5. If you turn to Acts 2.5, you'll see Dr. Luke there writing about all the people present from different nations throughout uh, the empire. And he says this, he, he says they were all there for the, the Feast of Pentecost. He says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then he goes on to list some of the nations represented there in verses 9 to 11. He says that there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pomphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. You can see here, in one sense, prior to the globalized world that we live in, it was entirely appropriate in some context to say that people were there from every nation. 
because people were there from every nation in the Roman Empire and throughout the known world at that time. And really, the entire book of Acts was kind of organized around this, this overarching principle of the gospel going forth to, to, the, to all nations, to the ends of the earth. If you read the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says that uh, his church will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts shows how the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem. It's kind of organized around this, uh, going forth from Jerusalem into wider Judea and Samaria. And then it ends with Paul in Rome, the apparent end of the earth in that regard, bringing the gospel to that city. So in one sense, at that time, prior to 70 AD, the gospel had reached the ends of the earth. This is why Paul can say in Colossians 1.6 that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world because it was, the mission was advancing, the gospel is going forth in the power of Christ's resurrection and spirit. People were being added to the kingdom of God, nation by nation, people by people, in the entirety of the known world at that time. The mission was advancing. And at the same time, persecution was advancing, which Jesus also foretells here. He says here that this persecution will take place in the religious realm of Israel from councils and synagogues in verse 9 there. And also in verse 9, he says it's going to take place in the political realm from governors and kings. And then in verse 12, Jesus says it will even take place in the familial realm. Jesus' disciples will be hated and persecuted even by their own parents and siblings and children. And he says in verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He doesn't mean every single individual is going to hate you. He means all of these spheres that we inhabit, from the religious to the political, the familial, hatred and persecution will come from them. And it did. You read Acts to see this. Almost immediately after uh, Acts 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4, we see Peter and John arrested, standing before a council. See the same in Acts 5, Acts 6, and 7, and 8, and on, and, and you'll see them standing before governors and kings bearing witness, just as Jesus said. You'll see Christ's people arrested, beaten, murdered, just as he said, and it still happens today. Persecution is a non-sign because persecution is a normative part of the Christian life. You know, Christians in other parts of the world are often confused when Christians in the West interpret this passage and its promise of, of persecution as a sign of the end approaching because Christians throughout the rest of the world, they've been getting persecuted, right? Having a privileged position in society like we Western Christians have had for the last several hundred years is not normal. We often think it's normal because we haven't experienced anything else, but it's not normal. Rather, it's normal for Christians to be persecuted to be pushed to the margins of society, to be slandered, to be fired from their jobs, to be hated by their families, to be arrested, to be killed. That's what's normal. That's why the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4.12 can say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He goes on in verse 15 to say, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or a meddler, now, sometimes that can happen. You know, sometimes people might hate us, not for the cause of the gospel, but because we're meddlers, because we put our nose where it doesn't belong, or because we're argumentative or rude. He says, don't suffer because of that. So in verse 16, that if you're going to suffer, be persecuted, be suffer, suffer as a Christian. Suffer as a result of the gospel. And when that happens, don't be surprised. We follow a crucified Savior. What do you think is going to happen to us? We need to be prepared for that. And some of us need to realize and grow accustomed to the idea that persecution is normative. We experience so little of this. But I've, I've talked to some of you recently who, who are experiencing this, this increasing tension at work or with family or with neighbors because what we believe as Christians is increasingly abhorred in our culture. For a long time, Christian beliefs, even if they weren't agreed with, they were respected in our society. But over time, in recent years, they've been increasingly disagreed with and, and increasingly seen as immoral or damaging or abusive. And so we're becoming increasingly abhorrent to others in our culture. 
There's no cause to fret, no cause to freak out, though, because at the same time, the mission will advance too. And often, throughout church history, and even still today, the mission often advances most drastically in the midst of persecution in a way that's totally unexplainable, except for by the wonderful, sovereign grace of God, these two realities advance often on parallel lines, which is why the advancement of the church's mission in persecution is a non-sign for Christ's disciples. But then, but then there's this sign. Okay, here we go. Um, just so you know, there's, there's been so little agreement throughout church history about what this sign is referring to. I found at least 10 positions on this in my preparation. Of course, you know, I'm convinced that Christ's disciples, when he talked about this, I'm sure they knew what he was specifically referring to. It was undoubtedly clear to those who needed it to be clear at the time. But for us today, it's just simply not as apparent. It's been a highly contested passage of Scripture. Of course, you'll be glad to know I figured it all out for us, right? After 2,000 years, I, it's been figured out in Dayton, Ohio by Garrison Green. So, No, but I've, I've done my best to, to try to understand what Jesus is talking about here, and I'm, I'm going to give you what seems to be the most likely explanation, okay? So Jesus says in verse 14, in answer to, to the disciples' request for a sign of when the destruction of the temple is about to take place, he says, here's the sign. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. And then Mark adds a little editorial comment. It's a little comment that I'm sure clarified things for for his original audience there in Rome as he wrote this, but has since baffled readers. He says, let the reader understand. Now, the abomination of desolation is a clear reference to three passages in the prophet Daniel. Uh, in fact, in, in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, 15, Matthew records Jesus' words here saying, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So he, he clearly says, this is in reference to the prophet Daniel. This is a reference to Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, 12, 11. Now, what those passages initially foretold was an event that took place in the temple about 150 years before Jesus' teaching here in Mark 13. This is during the intertestamental period, the time period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And one of the books written in, uh, in the intertestamental period records this. is 1 Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 1. It's a, an apocryphal book. It tells the story of this. It tells the story of Antiochus of Epiphanes, the Syrian general, and how he conquered Jerusalem and he sought to Hellenize Jerusalem and he forbade them from circumcising their children. He put a stop to Levitical sacrifices in the temple. He actually forced them to sacrifice pigs, which to obviously people in Israel there, that would be abhorrent. In 1 Maccabees 1.54, the writer says that on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year BC, they erected a desolating sacrilege, or an abomination of desolation, upon the altar of the burnt, on the altar of burnt offering. So there it is, the, the abomination of desolation that Daniel foretold. And there's some speculations about what this abomination, the sacrilegious thing was exactly. Some say it was a statue of Zeus, Some say it was a statue of Antiochus himself. Some say both. But this is what Daniel foretold, and this is undoubtedly what would have come to the disciples' mind when they heard this phrase, the abomination of desolation. And yet Jesus shows us here that there was also another abomination of desolation to come. And some have said that this coming abomination of desolation came by the hands of the Roman general, the emperor Titus, who led Rome's armies to destroy Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD. However, notice that Jesus' instructions following here, this sign, he tells his disciples to to flee Jerusalem when they see the sign. Well, if the sign was to flee Jerusalem when Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and broke down its walls and entered and destroyed it, that would have been too late. It would have been too late to flee at that point. The attack 
and the destruction would have already been upon the city. So Jesus seems to be foretelling something else, something that took place just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And that, something that took place just before that, makes the most sense from what I read here, took, the hands, uh, took place at the hands of this Jewish group called the Zealots. In the years 67 and 68 AD, the Zealots, under the leadership of John of Giscala, this guy we mentioned earlier, this group took over the temple and uh, they, 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 they permitted criminals to enter the sanctuary, they committed murders in the temple, and they placed someone in the role of high priest named Fani. And Fani was, was mentally ill. He was not of high priestly descent. He was someone who was standing where he ought not be, as Jesus says here. And, and what's interesting is that after that event took place, historians record that Christians fled the city. The historian Eusebius records this, saying that Christians were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city, to depart. And so they did. The Jewish historian Josephus says that people left the city as swimmers deserting, uh, deserting a sinking ship. And then, just a couple years after, Titus came and laid siege against Jerusalem in April of 70 AD, and then he invaded and destroyed it in August or September of that year. So that seems to be, from what I understand, be what is being referred to here is the, the abomination of desolation. Now, again, it makes the most sense to understand this as referring to the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, right? Many people assume that the abomination of desolation is referring to this antichrist figure at the end of the age before the final return of Christ. But look at the instructions here, following verses 14 to 18. There, Jesus warns his disciples to flee the city, and run to the mountains. Well, what difference would it make being in the mountains during the final judgment? He says for those relaxing on their roofs, as people did in Jerusalem at the time, to not go down to their houses to get their things, or for those who are in their fields, to not go back to the city to get their jackets. Just make your way out of the city to flee. Well, what difference would fleeing a city make in the final judgment? It wouldn't make any difference at all, because that will be a global, universal event. These kinds of instructions make little sense when considered as part of a, an, a global end-time judgment, but make all the sense in the world if they were given to people prior to the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And by the way, the attack against Jerusalem in 70 AD was a horrific time of tribulation and suffering. Jesus says here, perhaps with a kind of prophetic hyperbole, he says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Again, if this is talking about the end time global judgment and return of Christ, there's not going to be any time of tribulation after that. And so the, those words make little sense. But he says here, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And indeed, they were awful Awful days. I've read stories from, 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 uh, of that year in Jerusalem that made my blood curdle. It's, it was a horrible time. Stories that I'm not going to tell from this pulpit because there are children in this room, and I don't want to frighten them. Perhaps it would be best to simply sum it up in, in the words of Kent Hughes. In his commentary on this passage, he writes that, that in the city of Jerusalem, between April and September of 70 AD, as Titus laid siege upon the city, he says that the roofs were thronged with famished women with babies in arms and the alleys with corpses of the elderly. Children and young people were swollen from starvation. They roamed like phantoms throughout the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. But there was no lamenting or wailing because famine had strangled their emotions. Jerusalem could not bury all the bodies so they were flung over the wall. The silence was broken only by the laughter of robbers stripping the bodies. They were horrid, horrid times. And Jesus prophesied of these times to his disciples so that they need not have faced them. This judgment was not meant for them because their judgment had already taken place on the cross. And so he tells them in verse 23, I've told you all things beforehand. He gives them a warning. 
And he gives them instructions for how to live wisely in those times of chaos and destruction. Now, that's the the kind of exposition of the passage that I wanted to work through. But there are words of exhortation and instruction here for, for those who live in all different kinds of times. You might even say that we today live in times of chaos and craziness and destruction. Not too dissimilar from what we find in our passage, some of what we find in our passage this morning. We very well might might not experience suffering much like those to whom this passage was immediately addressed, but we live in times that seem increasingly chaotic, wherein people are increasingly fearful, wherein there seems to be a kind of anxiety permeating our culture. What do you do when you live in these kinds of times? There is exhortation and encouragement and instruction for us here. Although we're not I don't believe we're meant to be looking out for this particular sign mentioned here. There's still a kind of built environment we're meant to embody from Jesus' teaching here. What is it? Well, first of all, we're exhorted and instructed to be a people who discern. Discern. Again, our passage is bookended here with instructions to be discerning because there are false teachers and false Christs who come in all sorts of times and all sorts of different ways. Verse 6 says, see that no one leads you astray. Verses 9 and 23 both tell us, be on your guard. Don't be duped by false teachers. Be discerning. We live in times today where false teaching abounds. And some of those who teach falsely, as we saw a few weeks ago in, in Mark 12, even bear the name of pastor or teacher. Others have a wide breadth of social media influence. Others write books and teach in schools. There's really no shortage of false teachers today. And what's particularly dangerous about this is that if you want to, you can absolutely find someone to tell you precisely what you want to hear. If you want a teacher who will affirm precisely what you want to do sexually, you can find one to follow. If you want a teacher who tells you that the path to to flourishing and happiness is one of political power, you can find one. There's plenty of evangelical leaders who will tell you that. If you want a teacher who, who will promise you health and wealth and success, you can find one. If you want a Jesus who is all affirmation and no judgment, who will give way to all your demands but have none for you in return, who never disagrees with you, challenges you, or rebukes you, you can find someone that will give you that kind of Jesus. The problem is that those kinds of Jesuses are not the real Jesus. And so if you run after that kind of Jesus, you may have a Jesus who makes you comfortable, but you won't have one that can save you. Be careful, friends, about believing everything that you want to believe. Everything that is convenient and comfortable for you, be discerning. Get into the Word. Get to know the Jesus of the Bible, the one that God has revealed to us, not a Jesus of our own imaginations and misguided desires. Discern. Second witness. In season and out of season, in times of peace and of persecution, times wherein it's easier, times wherein it's harder, witness. Be faithful witnesses of the gospel, of the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of persecution, the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel and to witness. It did not cease in those days, and this call is laid upon us still today. I'm not unaware as to how unpopular such teaching is. Even even in the church, in, in a 2019 Barna Group survey, They found that about 47% of Christian millennials, ages 20 to 34, believe it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will too one day share the same faith. It's almost half. Another survey from LifeWay found that even among those Christians who are positive about evangelism and who desire to be faithful in evangelism, most of them just aren't. Perhaps that describes some of us. I can't pretend to know all the reasons why that is. I'm sure there are several different reasons, depending on a number of circumstances and individual proclivities. However, there's some solid encouragement in this passage for those of us who might be somewhat evangelism hesitant. 
some of us very well might be evangelism hesitant because we're afraid that, that we don't know enough, that we might look stupid, that we might get asked questions that we don't know how to answer, we might discredit the faith or something along those lines. But Jesus' words here can offer a solid kind of encouragement in the midst of these fears. He says in verse 11, Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Again, I know that the immediate context of that verse has to do with the apostles giving witness and trial before Jewish and Gentile authorities. There's a real sense in which that promise can be applied to those of us today still called to witness. Because today, the Holy Spirit still fills us as His people so that we might be witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read in Acts 1.8 earlier, the whole verse says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this is the result that flows from that. You will be my witnesses. Friends, we have received the power of the Holy Spirit for the same purpose, that we might be witnesses. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and empowered the witness of the apostles lives in you. You are not alone in this call to Christian mission. You are empowered for the mission that Christ has sent us on. Christ commanded us to witness, but he has so graciously furnished us with everything necessary to fulfill his command. We don't need to be afraid. If we step out in obedience to his command, we'll see him work in and through us in ways that are surprising and encouraging, I promise you. Witness. Next, pray. Verse 18, in reference to the tribulation there in Jerusalem, Jesus encourages the disciples to pray that it would not happen in winter. I've found that encouragement to be pretty peculiar over the last week in some ways, it, it seems, however, that the original hearers did pray for this, as Jesus instructed. The, the, the siege against and destruction of Jerusalem took place between April and September of 70 AD, so it didn't happen in winter. That's interesting. As I consider this, I, I, I find here encouragement to be disciples who ourselves are praying for those suffering in chaotic and destructive situations here today. To pray for a, a, a reduction of, of suffering, for relief for those suffering, is entirely appropriate and good for us to do. It might seem to us, sometimes in the face of, of wars and natural disasters in Russia and Ukraine and everything that's happening in this world and all the vast global gloom and doom we've witnessed in recent years that our little old selves and our little old prayers won't make much of a difference at all in the face of such huge problems. But according to Jesus here, they, they do. Not because we're great, but because God is. God hears the prayers of his people and he, he bends his ear toward us. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can come boldly into the heavenly throne room and into the presence of our God, and he hears us. Think of it. We have the ear in the heart of the sovereign of all heaven and earth, the one who's in control and in charge of all things, the one who can call all wars and nature and disasters to cease at a mere word. And he says to us, I want to hear from you about these things. I want you to bring requests about even about such events as these. And he hears. Are we praying for the many global and disastrous events that plague our world today? We can have an effect on such things if only we pray. And next, we endure. In verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, undoubtedly, it's, this is in relation to the the persecution, the heat kind of rising against the church there. We live in a time where it's, it's, increasingly or objection, it's increasingly objectionable to be a Christian in our culture today. This is plain for us to see. Christian life is not a comfy life. It's a cruciform life. It's a, a life of dying to self in order to live to Christ, and that's not easy no matter what kind of age you're living in. Because of that, some don't endure. 
I mean, I, I, I can look back to some of my, my Christian friends around the time that I first became a Christian, the old gang, so to speak. Not all of them are walking with Christ today. Their love has grown cold, or they've deconstructed, or, or, or whatever. And I, I'm sure you can think of friends that you grew up with, or from college, or, or from church, or, or whatever, that profess faith at some point, but have not endured. And of course, we, we, we believe in the perseverance of the saints here. We believe, what 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. In other words, he's saying those who don't ultimately endure, don't endure because they're not truly of Christ. However, that that doesn't at all lessen this exhortation to be those who endure. And in fact, such exhortations are, are, are very important means through which Christ intends to give us strength and stamina to endure. Furthermore, it seems from verse 22 here that it's even possible, it's even possible during this time for the elect to be led astray at times. And Jesus says that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, the elect, those chosen for salvation by God, won't ultimately finally fall away. They'll be kept by God's grace for final salvation, but that doesn't mean that Even the elect can't be led astray at times. Our church's confession speaks to this when it says that the elect will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. Now listen, and though they may fall through neglect and temptation and to sin, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach on the church and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. You see, friends, that that even the elect can fall and be led astray at times for a time. They'll be led back to repentance by the power of God and kept for full, final salvation. But even the elect can be led astray. And so this exhortation to endure is all the more sobering and important. We don't want to, to fall through neglect and temptation. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to impair our graces and comforts. We don't want to bring reproach on the church or temporal judgments on ourselves, even if we will be ultimately renewed again to repentance. We want to discern and witness and pray, and we want to endure. And then lastly, we want to trust. We want to trust. Friends, part of what is remarkable about this whole chapter is the fact that Christ foretold these events that took place just as he said they would said to his disciples in verse 23, I've told you all things beforehand. He told them everything beforehand, and it happened just as he said. So when you read the words of Jesus, you can know they are trustworthy. This is evidence for that. His word is trustworthy. You can trust when when Christ speaks because he speaks the truth. Then along with that, we don't just see that he is Trustworthy because he's truthful here. You can also say that he's trustworthy because he cares for his own. He cares for us. Notice his genuine concern for his own throughout the chapter. He calls them elect. He calls them chosen. What a a sweet way to speak. You are chosen. He shows his care. And that he would help them avoid the destruction of Jerusalem. He shows that he cares and and that he gives them fair warning so that they're able to endure in the midst of these crazy and chaotic times. He shows that he cares when he gives them knowledge of false Christs and teachers so that they can discern. He shows that he so tenderly, lovingly, so sweetly cares for his own Friends, we might live in crazy and chaotic times. We might live in this ancient, anxious system, much like they had leading up to 70 AD. We live in, in times of wars and rumors of wars and disasters and destruction, but we can rest in this Jesus, the Lord of all heaven and earth, the one who knows all things beforehand. He cares for you. Not a head, not a hair falls from your head without his knowledge. 
He who watches over the sparrow watches over you, and you are of more value to him than many sparrows. We see this here in Mark 13. And more importantly, we see this in what Mark will come to show us, that this Jesus who stepped into this crazy and chaotic world himself to be with us did so so that we might be saved, not just from temporal kinds of judgments we see in our passage here, not from all suffering in this life, but from the true and final judgment and suffering, the only judgment and suffering that could truly end us. He stepped in and he took that judgment upon himself for us. He went to the cross. He took our judgment in our place, in our stead, all because he cares. And so in crazy times and in this chaotic world. We don't need to be people who freak out because we can know from Mark 13 and and more importantly from the cross of Jesus Christ that our God is for us. He is trustworthy because he's true and he's trustworthy because he cares. Look to him and trust. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would seal this word upon our hearts. That as we come to the Lord's table and we see such a a clear display of the fact that Christ cares, would you strengthen our faith and our trust in him, even through this word and now through your table. We pray that you would strengthen us during this time, so that we might go out into the world and be a people who discern, who witness, who pray, who endure, and who from in the midst of it all, who trust you. We pray through Christ our Lord and our Master. Amen.